You're listening to Language Nerds to Earth, a podcast about linguistics, culture, travel, and how they're all connected. Now it's time to meet your language nerd hosts. One in China, one in Spain. It's Patrice and Rachel. Hi, everybody. I'm Patrice. And I'm Rachel. And I'm Sado. And welcome to Language Nerds. Wait a second. There's a third person on here. <laughs> Sara, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. So my name is Sara Bandand, and I am a PhD student at the Department of Language and Literacy at the University of Georgia. And today, it's my pleasure to be here. Yay! And we're so happy to have you. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for joining us. So. Uh, this is Language Nerds to Earth. We're on episode number 59. And yes, today, Saurabh is joining us. Saurabh reached out to us because he um, loved the podcast so much. And he just wanted to join in with us. And we were like, we'll just bring him in. So uh, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. But we are just, we are going to for- follow the normal format but we're excited to bring in some of Saurabh's experience and input yeah. as a, another multilingual language nerd. Yeah. So excited. Let's get it done. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about your own experiences. And today we are going to be talking about teaching English as a foreign language or a second language, ESL, EFL, whatever you mm-hmm. call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to start off by talking about getting into teaching English as a second language or a foreign language, and then we're going to get into everybody's experience because we have we are three different people with three very different experiences of bringing English as a second language to non-native speakers. And finally, Sarah is going to have a very entertaining Lots of translation, but before we get into that, it's time to talk about some language news. Yeah, no pressure, Sarah. So, language news. We have some pretty interesting language news for everybody who talks with their bodies, which means all of us. And the language news today is called The Movements That Betray Who You Are. Yes. And you want to give us a quick summary? Yeah, sure. So it's basically about how we have, quote, accents with our bodies. So different gestures or facial uh, expressions or things that we do with our bodies that tell a little bit about where we grew up. So it's pretty interesting and I've noticed it and I'm sure you guys have as well in living as a human um, and interacting with people from different places. <laughs> yeah, I think so. One example they give is the a famous one from Inglorious Bastards where the American who was pretending to be a German counted by one, two, three with his fingers starting with his thumb and that gave him away because the German he was speaking to was like, ah, I knew it. Or you're an, you're an American. He started with his index finger instead right. of his thumb. And he was pretending to be German and Germans start with their thumb. So what did you think of this, Sarum? I think it's pretty interesting to read because I also read the same article and I, was, I didn't 
find any typical differences, <laughs> to be frank. Uh, but I guess uh, there are less non there are less non linguistic differences in comparison to the, the linguistic differences we do have while talking um, same language and or talking in same language rather. And uh, I guess that's what I was just about. Uh, I was sharing a while ago as well that there are certain words in Indian English which does which do not exist in any other kind of english and i was just re, uh, i was just listening to this interview by uh one of the uh, politicians in america uh, in india who uh, who is known for his exquisite english in india and uh, he was talking and he has like a separate thesaurus as and uh, which consists of certain words which exist only in Indian English, which is a kind of an Anglophonic, Anglophone English. Uh, and uh, it was pretty interesting. I never had ever thought about this until you sent me that article and I saw that interview. So it was a pretty pleasant incident. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Huh. So you think there aren't, you think there aren't as many like non-linguistic differences within India or but in comparison to India and other cultures. See, a lot of uh, the adaptations that we have are from, uh, you know, the UK because we have been a former colony. Uh, and uh, so mm -hmm. I didn't, I'm just saying this on my personal, ex in terms of my personal experience, I did not experience anything. Mm -hmm. For example, if I want to say one, two, three, I would say one, two, three, or I mean, mm. it doesn't really right. matter how I'm saying it. Uh, and so, or yeah maybe this so uh yeah. so i mean i'm not sure if there's any non-lingual uh, like wide variety of long uh, non-linguistic differences which are so apparent but mm. you never know interesting <laughs> how yeah. about the um the the way of nodding how would you that's exactly what I was like, thinking. Is the bobble? I don't know how to do it, so I. Yeah, so uh, we have this nodding that we do like this, which is like a pendulum, and yeah. we would say, and this is both, uh, I agree, and yes, I I can do it. Okay, fine, I'm fine with this. You know, uh, I'm not. Mm -hmm. This is not the end of the world, kind of thing. But certainly not no. Like a pendulum. That's a good word. Mm. Yes. Yes. So, so I would like say, yeah, it's my mother tells me you have to do this. And I would say, okay. And so, and I think that's a really good example. <laughs> so that's like an like, example that like we don't do in the US or. Um, mm -hmm. if, if I saw somebody moving their head like a pendulum, I would be like, oh, that's like a characteristic of uh, like, body language from India. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, it would be. Or that uh, It region. could be, because, uh, but I don't think it is. It is only limited to India because, you know, I, I'm pretty sure my friends from Pakistan right, would right. do the same thing. I thought a really interesting example they gave in the article was um, that they could tell by different facial expressions if people were Japanese mm -hmm. or Japanese-American. Although ethnically yes. they're the same, but the way that they showed their emotions or different um, facial expressions was different. Yes. yes. Exactly. I always noticed in Germany, like the, dis there's like a disgust look, like a, 
You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, I You're think doing, so. <laughs> I did it. It's like, but it's, it looks like a disgust, but it's actually kind of like a, like a thinking face mm-hmm. that you kind of, um, it takes some time to learn and then, and not be afraid of, not be like, and, and as an American who always smiles and is like, please like me, please like me. <laughs> like Germans have kind of this angry thinking face a lot, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's a cultural body language. Yeah. Like, I think it, the more or less the way we receive it, it talks so much about our ideologies and lang- cultural ideologies and language ideologies. I remember when I was yeah. learning German in India and, you know, people would say that, you know, their language is rude, but I actually did not find it rude at all. And I, uh, I mean, while I was learning, I, I got this wonderful opportunity to interact with a lot of people from German heritage because uh, my teachers were essentially German. Uh, not only teachers, I would meet many other people who would just who would be just traveling. They would just like to meet and greet with people who are not German and learning German language, and they want to just come and interact with you, and they just want to pay their tribute that thank you for learning our language. And while doing that, I realized that they had this thing in their mind that you know we do certain things which are not received as the way we would like them to be because there are certain ideologies in certain cultures which just mm. have fixated uh, us for certain things or certain traits or certain manners. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, I sort of resonated also in the article with how they said you might be walking down a street in a foreign country and see someone that you recognize as being from your country not by any physical characteristic or anything or even language, but just how they move or how they walk or, and that's totally happened to me. I see somebody out of the corner of my eye. I'm like, they're American. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what it is, but something Mm -hmm. about (laughs) the way that they, you know, I have distinguished one thing that is not specific only to Mm -hmm. Americans, but some parts of Western Europe I've noticed as well, like maybe British. Well, that's not really Western, but anyway, uh, British also have a similar thing sometimes, which is a very distinct hunch and poor posture. <laughs> huh? Yeah. And I always recognize people like they do not fit in there. <laughs> but look at how they're standing. <laughs> it's a yeah. whole family and they're all like, never noticed that that totally makes sense i never noticed that um something else that was really great that they said was that i I thought was fascinating was putin he walks with like his one arm is normal but his gun arm like is straight at his side from his time in the kgb Uh uh-huh and that's like something that's that you'll see in russians yeah that (laughs) was pretty cool like changing like a certain portion of the population like by external factors Mm -hmm. exactly Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's very apparent uh, from the kind of clothes that you wear right so i remember one of my friends was telling me that he was uh going back home and he was taking a school shuttle 
and somebody uh, reached out and said, are you from this country? And this person was like, oops, how do you know that? Oh, you're wearing this. And, you know, I've been there. I've lived there for four years. And I've noticed that people are, uh, there were visiting this typical, uh, was, were wearing this typical pattern uh, very often. So I thought maybe I can check with you. And my friend was like, yes, I am. Yeah, it's, I mean, sometimes it's things that we don't notice until we go uh, farther away. Like if I had never left the United States, I might never have noticed. But yeah, you see people from your own culture or from other cultures and you sort of mm-hmm. notice something. Mm-hmm. Well, should we go on to sure. the next part? Yes, let's start talking about getting into ESL. So um, this is for the nerds out there who would like to travel or um, have thought about teaching ESL or EFL and don't know how to do it. So I'll start with the way I got into it, which is the way a lot of Americans do, which is I kind of fell into it. I knew I wanted to travel after university and I was working at a restaurant and somebody I knew, and they said, oh, you should go to Korea and teach English. And I was like, wow, what a randomly specific thing to say. <laughs> and, and so I talked to him about it for a while. I looked it up. And a year later, I was, I was on a plane to Asia for the first time in my life. And it turns out that I was really good at it. And I really enjoyed it. And now I don't just teach English as a foreign language to students, but I have, but I use a lot of those skills in my teaching in the classroom. And there are a lot of recruiters who get paid a lot of money to help people get abroad. So the most important thing I would say when you find a recruiter like that is to make sure that you find one that is not going to charge you Mm. because they're going to get paid a lot anyway and make sure that you talk to somebody else who somebody who has worked at the school where you're going to work so recruiting and then you would work in a public or a private school basically right yeah make sure you talk to people who've been through the process before and getting the education beforehand at least a TEFL certificate will will help a lot as well. A lot of people go into it thinking, oh, I speak English, so why do I need to learn how to teach it? And it is quite a skill that you develop. It's not like something that comes very naturally. Yeah. Okay, so that's one way. And that's really common in Asia, um, especially Eastern Asia, that you go through... Definitely. You go through a recruiter man words you go through a recruiter and then they set up everything right i mean i haven't done it but that's what i understand yeah they set up everything yeah, they help you with their visa with your visa interviews interviews at different schools your housing etc um okay so that's one way there's also the sort of bootstrap way i guess you could say which i have read about i don't know anybody i don't think who's done it more throughout like maybe Latin America uh, where you go and then sort of live 
their visas work a little bit differently. So you can sort of cross over mm -hmm. every 90 days uh, over the border and then come back and get another 90 day visa. But um, is that a tourist visa? Yeah, basically. Mm. It's not a hundred percent kosher, but um, <laughs> yeah. And people do that in Spain as well. I know a lot of people who kind of teach under the table in Spain. This is true, but they have a different visa system. But in Latin America, your visa actually does renew every, if you leave the country and come back. But in the European Union, in the Schengen zone, it's, you have to be out of the country for 90 days before it starts over. Mm. And how did you get into it, Rachel? Oh, how did I get into it? Um, well, I started illegally. So that was the first step, you know. Um, I decided because I was gonna go to Korea and then my recruiter ghosted me and it was sort of too late to like go start the process again. And I was like, well, I have no plan B. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was like May and I was like, well, that was the plan. And so I decided to go to Spain because I studied Spanish and well, I thought that would be a better choice than not using the language that I studied. And yeah. so I went to Spain I worked at an academy for like four months under the table. And then I went back home and I decided to actually get a visa. <laughs> so I came to Spain with a student visa, studied a TEFL and then studied Spanish more. And then I kept renewing that. And that's how I got into it. So um, I didn't work for a school, although that is a big that is a common way that people do it in Spain as well. Like these public programs that you work in a public school or a private school, there are different ones. And you, you would work like as a language assistant, basically. Um, so that's another way. Great. Mm. My experience has been really, really unconventional. I come from a very modest family uh, in India and uh, knowing English language in India could be really, really revolutionary. I mean, it can open so many doors for you that one can never even imagine. So, uh, you know, you get social upliftment, you get a lot of professional opportunities. Um, you feel empowered, literally. Yes. So, I mean, my mother wanted, uh, I mean, she had a, wonderful Hindi, thing, uh, Hindi literature degree from one of the top, uh, top colleges in India of that time. Uh, but just because she couldn't speak English and, want, and she was applying to private schools, in the post-colonial uh, countries, for a job which doesn't necessarily require uh, Hindi, uh, English language skills, they would still expect from the job applicants to know that language because that, brings, uh, that gives you a certain kind of access. Mm -hmm. So I saw my mother struggling, uh, struggling with this all the time. And I just learned from that experience. I, uh, and I, I remember my mother putting all her efforts and, um, you know, she wanted us, me and my sister, to uh, live or achieve those things which she couldn't, despite having all the basic credentials one could ever have. Uh, so... I, uh, I just thought that why not to provide that 
magic wand to others. So once I started learning, uh, once I had a good grip over language, I started tutoring. I started tutoring others in uh, in English or foreign English language, and uh, and I understood that there are certain nicks and nags that I probably have to understand myself as teachers in order to serve my students better. So I went ahead and started uh, mm. learning German and Hungarian as well. Then uh, I was doing pretty fine. I was teaching, uh, you know. Uh, young adults and middle schoolers uh english language and uh but mostly uh, i was mostly helping with their for their speaking but then i noticed that their parents are teaching them english at the cost of their regional language because they have this ideology in their mind that what our language brings to them anyway what kind of access would they get it right so let's teach them something which provides them right. opportunities or resources or uh, something that they couldn't have. So while tutoring to my students, I also started talking to my uh, to their parents and telling them that you know it's great you are trying to give them access to something uh, which is great in nature. We are teaching them an additional language, but do not teach them at the place of something else. You know, there are every language or has its own culture, a, a value associated to it. Uh, so don't do that. Then I started, I wanted to, uh, you know, make this as my career. I started applying for international teaching, jo English teaching jobs, the way you guys were mentioning. And I applied for certain jobs where, uh, you know, my credentials were good and I was just moving forward and things were like pretty nice, but they wouldn't hire us. So I just started getting into, like, started talking to other people, like, why people from India don't get uh, hired for, you know, in international English teaching jobs. I applied, didn't get it. I took a lesson from it. I said, no, I really need to dig into this. Let's, and then I heard about this TESOL certificates and so forth. And I realized that they are really, really different fields. Because, and then I, uh, you know, uh, moved to the United States in 2018, did my MATSOL, and I learned that there are certain sections of society who actually learn English intuitively, and they don't know why not this word, or why this word, or, or what is right. the connection, uh, and what are the structural changes? Why we put verb on the second spot? The metalinguistic information about the language itself is not very, very elaborately consumed by certain sections of society uh, because they have learned English intuitively. Yeah, that's right. Which is why I think if you're going to teach English or any language, really, you need to have some sort of certificate like a TESOL, a TEFL, a... CELTA. CELTA, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, CELTA. Uh, CELTA. One of those, I mean, there are different... I think CELTA is the most intense. I think so. TEFL is sort of the most basic. Mm -hmm. And usually, I mean, you can get those in online or in a matter of a couple yeah. of weeks. Right. Um, CELTA, I think you have to be at a U UK. I guess all the British councils, uh, mm -hmm. institutions in different countries, you know, they have this British uh, cultural center. They offer it because in India it, it was like that. 
but it was pretty expensive uh, f- mm-hmm. uh, in terms of Indian uh, currency. Yeah, it's like prohibitively expensive. I remember looking into it at some point too and uh, being like, so yeah. I'm not sure. I'm yeah. happy that I did my MIT Sol and I learned the, about the concepts in much yeah. more deeper detail. We've kind of talked about getting into it and mm-hmm. uh, I think I could go a little bit deeper into my experience. Okay, so yeah, Patrice, if you could like maybe talk about a little bit more of your experience in Korea and then in the US and then in Yeah, China. yeah, in China, yeah. So teaching ESL, I've talked a lot about my background on this show before, but I don't know if I've put it explicitly. First, I taught in Korea for two years at a kindergarten and an afternoon school. I taught 10 classes a day, so lots of different age groups. Yeah, really tired all for two years. Um, And then I went back to the U.S. and got my master's degree. And uh, at that time, I also taught for about a year to mostly university-age students from all over the world. A lot of people from the Middle East were there, like Saudi Arabia, um, some Brazilians, but Chinese people, Koreans, Indians, they were all over the map. Um, And then it came back to Asia because I missed it. And in China, I taught for two years in local Chinese schools, English as a second language to mostly second and third graders. And I can say that different ages have different learning styles. But in my experience, as an English as a second language teacher, everybody learns when they're relaxed and they have a good time. (laughs) So in all of my classes, I've always tried to be like a little goofy (laughs) and try to make sure that everybody feels comfortable and not afraid to make mistakes. And even in my classroom now, as a subject teacher, that's a big thing, a big part of my teaching is trying to get my students to lose a fear of failure because we learn through making mistakes. And I can say that it's really fun. I think it's been the best part about teaching. I'm sure any teacher can say this as well. You guys will probably agree is learning from your students. It's definitely a mutual relationship of learning. I learned so much from my Korean students and my Saudi students and my Chinese students. If we are learning together, then I know I've had a good day. And that's almost every day of teaching. <laughs> so, yeah, I, that wasn't really very specific, but that's been my experience. Specific answers are overrated. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think it was pretty specific. I mean, you taught in private and public schools in mm-hmm. different ages. Yeah. I will say that I think everybody needs a little bit of grammar in their lives. <laughs> you know, that's one thing that I've definitely 
learned, even when students, adult students come to me and they say, I want a conversation class. I don't want grammar. I'm like, okay, we're going to have grammar. <laughs> That's what you're going to apply, right? Right. I mean, right. I can't let you walk around saying, I like go eat right running right. like yeah. no that's you're not gonna speak very fluently if you don't have some grammar and i'm gonna i'm gonna look bad as a teacher so it's the bones and then the flesh is the the speaking and the conversation and but we have we have to have a structure anyway even native english speakers still learn what a noun is and yeah still learn like what what past tense meet what past tense is and subject and predicate things like that like i didn't like Although, learning that in school hmm? i will say that uh i was shocked by how many people in my tuffle course did not know basically what a noun what the past tense was what uh conditional was yeah. i'm like we learned this in school like right but most of them were from the uk who didn't learn it and apparently there was like a period where they didn't teach grammar. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. So, well, that explains some stuff. Should I talk about my experience a little bit? Yeah. So I, as I said before, I started at a language academy and a really common thing in Spain is like, uh, and I think in some other European countries as well, you work multiple jobs. So when I first came back as a legal person, uh, I was working <laughs> in the mornings at a language academy, which was only for adults. And so they were all Spanish, pretty much uh, a couple of Latin Americans as well. But anyway, Spanish was pretty much the mother tongue of everyone. So I think that's sort of a different experience than Patrice, like maybe what you did in the U.S. or mm -hmm. Sarah, maybe what you do in the U.S., when you have students from a bunch of different languages, um, you sort of adapt your teaching style. And if you have students who all have the same mother tongue, they make the same mistakes and they, you sort of learn what those are and you can preemptively teach things that they frequently have trouble with. Yeah, definitely. I think that makes a big difference. Like learning the traditional mistakes that your students make from a certain place and mm -hmm. noticing quickly when they do it, especially or prevent preemptively getting in there and making sure they know before they make the mistake. Yeah. And I don't think that either one of those like scenarios is better that you should have all students from the same language or all students from different language. It's just yeah. a sort of a different teaching experience. But I agree. I think both are good. Mm -hmm. And you can, as a student in those situations, you can learn from your other students um, and their mistakes. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's pretty interesting you uh, pointed that out because when I started at Minnesota State, I was also a graduate teaching assistant and I was teaching uh, English compositions with the bilingual writers. And they were all, yeah, of course, college level, first year international students, or if not international students, they were first or second generation immigrant students. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is really, really hard to filter students from based on certain criteria. I mean, you will have, your class would be uh, a mix of 17 languages mm -hmm. sometimes. So I really have to navigate my pedagogy accordingly. So at that point of time, what worked for me is to 
do uh, community building exercises mm-hmm. or uh, discussing concepts of world Englishes because I had students coming from different Anglophone or post-colonial nations, for example, uh, Nigeria or mm-hmm. Pakistan cool. or, as, or uh, such countries where, you know, they were shy talking in certain kind of Englishes and I would say it's okay to do like that and... Uh, uh, and uh, every language has equal identity here, and it doesn't really matter what language do you speak. We're gonna learn it. And the way Patrice has also mentioned, I think one of the things I really want, I was very particular about checking in with them and telling them that it's okay to make mistakes. You are in this class to learn certain things and nobody is perfect in this world. The notion of being perfect is so overrated that you really have to make mistakes in order to learn things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. my focus was essentially over fluency, over proficiency. And that is why I made certain changes in my language when I, uh, or uh, my proper nouns when I am quoting certain population or people from different community. I would never say native speakers of English language or, uh, you know, you're not a native speaker of English language. I would make certain choices specifically in order to make my students feel more inclusive. I would say domestic speakers of English language. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did that so that they don't feel bad because when I'm saying this, I'm also propagating that being native of a certain language is good, Mm -hmm. which is not Mm -hmm. true all the time. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, what matters is that you have to be fluent in your communication or whatever communication process you are engaging in, you are able to express yourself. Definitely. So, that, so it shouldn't matter that whether you are a native in quotes or or not. So I think what you're <clears throat> what you're saying that I totally identify with is building confidence before perfecting the way students speak. Right. And that can be challenging, at least at least where I teach. And I think it's the same for a lot of different places. But uh, if you're teaching like adults, Spanish adults, at least can be really like harsh on themselves. And yeah. they want you to like, correct the heck out of them. <laughs> and, you know, I like I don't want to do that right from the very get go. Right. And I've heard that that like, especially in Madrid, People can be really, really shy about their English. Yeah, and they don't, like, but the thing is they want you to correct them or else they think you're not going to teach them. <laughs> so basically, um, sometimes you have to up your correction on the first lesson because they might not hire you or they might not stick with your classes if they're coming to a group class because they're like, oh, well, too soft, not going to learn. And it can be hard to convince them <laughs> otherwise yeah yeah I, and, you know the the example it's really great that you pointed this out because i have had similar experiences when uh it talks so much about the ideology of uh, certain language in certain communities uh, uh because you know in india as well there's like an overtly at least not uh, i mean i would say for very long there was an overtly emphasis on learning grammar and people would like want to learn grammar they would literally grasp all the grammar rules 
and uh, there's like they would follow GMT, like you know, grammar, grammar methodology technique, where there's like overtly uh, emphasis on translating from one language to another. For that, they have mm-hmm. to uh, they have to focus more on grammar and vocabulary learning. So the focus is more on uh, content learning over learning the art of language, like how the language works. Uh, so then people from certain community broke in that kind of ideology. They think that there's only one way of learning English, right? Mm-hmm. And they internalize us, uh, that thing in themselves. And it's really difficult on the teacher's part to, to give them reasonable understanding of this, that there's no one way of teaching. There's no hegemony mm-hmm. or there shouldn't be a hegemony of uh, certain language. So, I completely agree because it, it happened with me as well. I mean, when I was uh, teaching, I noticed this kind of an ideology coming from my students itself that uh, only a white person can teach them English because that's the synonym of it. And I would say, no, that's not true. A black person would teach you as a better language as, you know, a white would. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what ethnicity one comes from. There is definitely white face bias all over the place. Yeah. Totally. And that's a big thing in Asia, I believe, as well. Definitely. Yes. I haven't noticed it as much in Spain, but I'm also white. Yeah. So. <laughs> but I do have some black friends here who are getting along okay teaching English. But, you know, I really want to specify this. Like, and I was actually, <laughs> I actually discussed this in my language ideology class that I'm taking at UGA uh, this semester that, you know, there have been a lot of wage discrimination based on mm-hmm. what, uh, what ethnicity you come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, since you guys are uh, teaching English in EFL context, essentially, I guess, uh, I, I'm not sure if you guys have more to add into it or not, but, you know, uh, when I see ESL job postings, especially on certain job portals, I would find specifically uh, in the description that they are looking for native mm-hmm. and they would say that we are looking for people from these certain countries which have been uh, essentially the native english speaking countries and uh, even though they hire people coming from outside those countries they would compensate them considerably less right right yeah well i teach currently um i teach online in china and uh, most of the companies you have to be uh, native and mostly they want a North American accent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm in some Facebook groups for online teaching and there are a lot of people who come from, uh, let's say, Hong Kong or other places where they speak English basically bilingually and they can't get hired. And they are, they're always asking, is there a company and I think there might be a couple, but the vast majority, they want a North American accent. Yeah. yeah. Actually, the job opportunities for Filipinos in China has been on the rise. Um, I think because, like you said, there is that white face bias, but people are paying such a premium for people with white faces to teach their children English that Filipinos, they don't usually make as high of a salary in China. So the job opportunity, like they're making what sounds really awful, but they're making what like white people made a few years ago 
Um, it sounds like weird to say aloud because like I'm speaking to our audience who most of the people are not in China, in Asia, but in Asia, like there's just this frankness about race and it's just like, yeah, like make more money if you're white. (laughs) Um, it's not, it's not pretty and I definitely benefit from it, but I don't think that it's, I don't think it's fair. That's, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but in Spain, if you're a Spanish person who speaks English and you want to teach. uh, So I worked at an academy um, for two years and they said that they only hired native speakers. This was not true. And so they lied about the fact that so one of my um, co-workers, his name was Jesus, and <laughs> they called him, they made him change his name to James and lie and say that he was from England. He had a very strong Spanish accent. His students were like, are you really, aren't you Spanish? And he's like, no, I'm from England. <laughs> and so really weird. And so but basically what I was saying is. Um, That's so funny. If you're a Spanish person who wants to teach English, you can expect to make about half the salary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like the normal base is like maybe 20 euros an hour. I've seen most Spanish people advertise themselves for 10 or 12. Oh. It's really not enough. No, it's not. It's not in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, I know, I think we could talk about this all night for me, all day for you guys. <laughs> But probably I think yeah. we should move on. We will definitely I'm gonna I forgot to mention I'm gonna publish my recruiter in the show notes. I'll put a link to his website because he's awesome and he actually sent me to both Korea and Shenzhen, China. And he's always on the lookout for more more candidates. It's he's his website is Teach ESL Korea. And um if you guys have links to the way you guys you got into teaching we'll also put those in the show notes okay um so if you have any experience with teaching esl that you would also like to share please feel free to reach out to us you can email us at language nerds to earth at gmail.com or you could go to our website which is language nerds to earth.com and go to the lost in translation slash contact section And there you can send us a little message. So, time for a Lost in Translation. Lost in Translation. Wait, wait, I didn't sing, Rachel. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Lost in Translation. (laughs) Okay, Sarah, what have you got for us? Well... I still remember I was at Walmart when I initially moved to the United States in 2018. So I was looking for something and I asked someone if they could help me find coffee. And this person was in a hurry. And this person said, oh, why don't you go to register and ask? And I thought, why this person is telling me to go to a stationary uh, office supply department to get coffee? Because for <laughs> me, register is a long uh, version of notebook. And I didn't realize what is a bed sister. And, <laughs> and, and uh, I was like, okay, um, 
And I said, what's register? And he's like, where you pay? And I was like, oh, do you mean cash counter? He's like, no, I mean register. And I was like, oh, okay. So I just made that connection. Oh, maybe the cash register, uh, the cash counter is registered here. So I was like, okay, thank you for your help. <laughs> so that was my last translation moment. <laughs> thank you. There are always those words that people can't seem to understand, even though they're similar. Yeah. yeah. It's also, I love that, that 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 person was like, no, you're wrong. And you're like, actually, okay. that reminds me of something that happened to me a couple of years ago. Um, I was at a, a bar at a cafe and I ordered a coffee with soya, like uh, leche de soya. And he looked at me like I was insane. And I was like, soya? And he's like, <laughs> what? And then my friend was like, soja. And he was like, oh. <laughs> It's soya in Latin America, and so uh, it was like whoop right over his head. <laughs> like it's pretty understandable that they're they're almost the same. Right, right, and like if in both of those situations, those people who got the mistranslation were not expecting it at all, and they're just like, especially because you guys like you sound like you know what you're talking about, right? And like when you're speaking Spanish and when you're speaking English, it's like, I'm looking, I'm looking for the coffee. Uh, I need, I need some kind of milk. And then something weird comes out of your mouth and they're like, I don't have time for this. What is wrong with you? <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. That's really funny. I mean, in that case, like cash counter is also very similar. Like it's understandable. Right. But, yeah. Like, speaker of English to okay that's the cash register or whatever I love I love Sarum's like reaction like okay thanks for your help (laughs) (laughs) well it's been a pleasure yes Um, we really enjoyed having you on Sarum Mm -hmm. it was my pleasure the pleasure was actually mutual (laughs) Rachel and Patrice it was wonderful having been welcomed here and uh, I know you guys have been managing from two different squares of the world so thank you so 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 much and thank uh, you you guys have been really really good at communicating and make this thing happen yeah so we are in three different countries right now so it was such a pleasure that we could still make this happen despite our busy schedules and overtly weird situation that this planet is going through yeah <laughs> totally yeah well thank you so much yeah. Sarah. it's been awesome great. it's really great thank to have you. you on so um if you would like to connect with us like Sarah did you're welcome to write to us like i talked about earlier we're also on facebook and instagram make sure you leave us a review on itunes that helps more people find us and tell your friends about it. Spread yeah. the word. And subscribe. And subscribe. Some people still don't know how to podcast. So. It's sad, but true. And yeah. we don't mean like three people. We mean like half the people. Yeah. <laughs> you likely solver. know a person who doesn't know how to podcast. And they might really be missing out. So anyway, thanks a lot, everybody. Have a great day. Right.
weekend. Live. <laughs>